sacrificial love in the community of Christ. And again, the specific verses that we'll be hitting are uh, mostly chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And so, yes, go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. I'll read our passage for us. We'll pray and we'll dig into the scriptures together and we'll see what God wants to teach us. This is the word of the Lord from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Sound City, may we be blessed by the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord God, the scriptures say of themselves that they are your very words breathed out by you and that they're profitable for teaching and for reproof and for uh, correction and for training in righteousness. So as we gather this morning, we do so with the confidence that you'll accomplish those things in each one of us as we open up your word together. Lord God, I pray also that I would be faithful to you this morning as your servant in teaching only that which would make your name great and only that which would encourage and edify your people. And I pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So maybe this only happens in my house. But in the Patrick home, it would be fair to say that once in a while, we struggle with something that we might call memory challenges, I'll call them. Uh, I won't put this all on the kids. This is Stephanie and I as well, for sure. And whether we want to blame the finiteness of our brains in this fallen world or just the busyness of life, these memory challenges end up causing certain words and phrases to become really commonplace in our home. And most of them are some derivative of one of these two, either don't forget to or remember to. Either don't forget to or remember to. And just in recent days, if you were in the Patrick home, I think you would have heard all these phrases at least once, probably twice, and probably lots of other similar statements. For example, don't forget, I have an elder meeting tomorrow morning. Remember, you have the kids tonight, Shane, because I'm going out with the community group gals. Don't forget to lock the door and set the alarm. And then the language happens all over the place with our kids as well. Don't forget to pray. Remember to put your dishes in the dishwasher. Don't forget to do your homework. And remember not to leave your phone, backpack, shoes, socks, hat by the trampoline again. Gibson. (laughs) Now we've all experienced these things to some degree or another, right? But even beyond the memory challenges that come with just the busyness of life, when we have something really important to say that we fear a family member or a friend may be at risk of forgetting, we remind them, don't we? Yeah, we we love them, and so we want to try and make sure that uh, they remember things, especially really important things. Well, the verses that we're covering today have a little bit of this same flavor to them. And in fact, all of chapter 13 really has a little bit of this feel, as we'll see together over the next few weeks. Now, as we mentioned here and there throughout the series, uh, the book of Hebrews likely started out as a sermon, which was then in God's providence written down, initially for a group of Jewish converts to Christianity, uh, who were the first hearers and readers of the letter, which the author of Hebrews wrote. And he wrote this letter in order to convince and persuade and exhort these young Christians not to abandon their faith in Jesus, which had been increasingly weakening over time. Now, 30 years or so removed from the actual events of the cross, this generation of converts to Christianity were now being persecuted for their faith in various ways. 
They were tempted to go back to Judaism, to the faith of their forefathers. How much easier life would be, they thought, if they were to just go ahead and deny Jesus as Messiah and as God. And so against this backdrop, it's against this backdrop, that the author of Hebrews preaches this Holy Spirit-inspired sermon and then writes it down as a letter. A letter that would spread throughout the churches of the known world in order to give encouragement and give warning and as a pleading to all to persevere and to endure in their faith in Jesus as Savior and as Lord. Now, as we've witnessed together throughout the last year in his letter, the author of Hebrews offers argument after argument, drawing significantly from the Old Testament, which the original readers and hearers of the book would have known really well in order to show things like Jesus really is the true, long-promised Messiah and Savior. That Jesus was and is the founder of their and our salvation, according to chapter 2. That Jesus was and is the new and better Moses. That Jesus is our divine and eternal high priest. And we could go on and on. The author of Hebrews arguing probably a hundred different ways in his letter to those doubting Christians and to us that Jesus is God. These arguments, these warnings, these exhortations that the author of Hebrews is making through his letter are meant to persuade his first readers and hearers and us not to shrink back from our faith in Jesus, even when the world might ridicule, even when the world might threaten harm to us for believing that Jesus is God and that salvation is found in no one but him. So that's where we've been so far. In the last year or so, as we've been trekking our way through chapters 1 through 12, that's where we've been so far. And now as we turn the corner into chapter 13, the author of Hebrews wants to make sure that we remember all that he taught us. So with the heart of a pastor, he, as he finishes up this sermon, this letter, he means to tell his first audience and us, hey, before I go, don't forget God's love for you and all that I've told you concerning the importance of persevering in the life of faith. Hey, before I go, remember to live the lives God created you for and the lives that I've been calling you to in this letter. When we have something really important to say, that we fear a friend or a family member may be at risk of forgetting, we remind them, don't we? Of course we do. Chapter 13, then, for the first hearers and readers of this book and for us is a sort of list of these don't forget to's, of these remember to's, as the letter now nears its close. Chapter 13 is its author's parting words, his summary reminders of all that he's taught us up to this point. And as we dig into verses 1 through 3, we get to uncover the first big idea of this closing chapter, which at a summary level teaches us something like this. It teaches that being part of God's family means sacrificially loving God's people. Being part of God's family means sacrificially loving God's people. That's our central proposition. That's the big idea for today. And we'll see this truth play out as we dig into our passage together. But before we go into our new verses, I want to look back a little bit at what Pastor Aaron taught us last week at the end of chapter 12. Because it will be in that context that we can better understand our passage as well. Now, here at the end of chapter 12 in verse 25, the author of Hebrews is warning his first audience and us not to refuse or turn a deaf ear to the loving but stark warnings offered to those who were considering abandoning their faith in Jesus. Verse 25 saying this, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven." 
Then next in verses 26 and 27, we're told that God will one more time clean house before the eternal state begins, shaking both the earth and the heavens such that all that will remain afterwards is the unshakable kingdom of Jesus. A kingdom, by the way, that because of God's love for his chosen people, he has invited us into through Christ for all eternity. Is that good news to anyone today? Next then, in light of God's freeing and redeeming and saving love for us in Christ Jesus, in light of his good promises to his people, the author of Hebrews in verse 28 says, Therefore, because of these things, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, what would worship like that look like? Well, the author of Hebrews is glad you asked because in these next couple of verses, he's going to seek to begin to provide an answer for that question. And it reads like this. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. So what we see here as we look at verses 1 through 3 in light of how chapter 12 finished up is a little bit of the whole indicatives and imperatives thing we talked about a week or two ago. Did you notice that? You'll recall that the indicative statements of Scripture, we said, are kind of the what is or the who we are, the realities about God's Word. And the imperative statements in the Scripture are the related commands and instructions and therefore we must realities of the text. And so for us today... It looks something like this. At the end of chapter 12, some of the indicatives, because of the unshakable kingdom that God in his love has invited us into through faith in Jesus, that's the reality, that's the what is, because of those things, therefore, our lives ought to overflow joyfully into a rhythm of reverent, awe-inspired worship of Jesus that, according to verse 1 through 3, looks like lives of active and sacrificial love for God's people. That back half was the imperative part of that. So because of God's great love for us, because of all he's done for us, this is the life that he's calling us to. And for those of us who are, by grace, part of God's family, through Christ, a life of sacrificially loving God's people is exactly what the passage today is calling us to. So let's dig in a little further to that now and see how that all unfolds. Verse 1 again begins, let brotherly love continue. And we're going to spend a while here talking about this verse because it utterly informs our understanding of verses 2 and 3 as well. Let brotherly love continue, it says. So apparently one of the major ways that we're called to live out a worshipful response to the love God has shown us in Christ is by letting brotherly love continue. But what does that mean? Well, it's interesting. The single Greek word for the English term brotherly love is Philadelphia, Philadelphia, and what the Greek word means to convey is a special kind or quality of love that uniquely binds people together. It's meant to be descriptive of that familial kind of love that siblings have for one another, or that they should anyway. And yes, as some of you know, and as some of you might be wondering, it's this Greek word that inspired William Penn to give the city of Philadelphia its name in 1682. This is why Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love, because that was Penn's hope for his city. But as we consider the nuance of this word, we have to also look at how its use has evolved from its original use outside of Scripture, and then now to the way that the biblical authors began to use it, because those two things are not the same. In Scripture, its focus is always on the family of faith rather than on the natural family or the family of blood relations. 
Philadelphia also carries with it this idea of love that goes beyond sentiment or feeling and carries more with it this idea of a decided will, a commitment to live sacrificially with God's family. Abiding in love for one another is the idea here through things like um, kindness, sympathy to one another, through physical and practical helps for Christians in need especially. And we find some of the earliest expressions of this kind of brotherly love in the book of Acts in chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, which gives us kind of a glimpse or a snapshot of what this kind of love would have looked like in the earliest days of the church. It reads, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles' And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their day, to their number day by day, those who were being saved. This is the brotherly love, the Philadelphia that the author of Hebrews is inviting us into, calling us to. But why would calling his first audience to prioritize brotherly love really make this, this list of really important reminders that the author of Hebrews feels compelled to offer as his teaching is drawing to a close in chapter 13? Why would that make the list? Well, R.C.H. Linsky, a Lutheran scholar, answers this way, saying, any one of the readers who would be inclined to give up Christ and to, to revert to Judaism would promptly show that decline in faith by coldness and indifference to his Christian brethren. What Linsky's recounting here is what we talked about earlier, that these persecuted Christians were weak in their faith and considering giving up. And he's reminding us also of the really important relationship that exists between a strong faith and loving one another well within the family of God. He's saying that when we doubt in Jesus, when we lack faith in Jesus, we do so to the degree to which our love for one another will fail. Let me say that a different way. The degree to which we lack faith in Jesus is the degree to which we will fail to love fellow Christians with the kind of love that the scriptures command. If that's true, that makes those moments when we don't love one another well into a sort of early warning system for us too, doesn't it? And when we hear that alarm go off, when we recognize we are not loving a brother or sister in Christ as we should, then that ought to cause us to prayerfully consider where our own faith might be failing, right? For the first audience of the book of Hebrews, the need for the command and the reminder to extend brotherly love to one another came from the reality that their faith in Jesus was failing, and therefore so was their love for one another, Sound City, since this command is for us today as well, though, do you suppose that we might need this command and reminder for the same reason? Because all of us need our faith bolstered in one way or another as well? Hmm. The Apostle Paul, describing our calling to brotherly love with a slightly different language, says in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
Sound City where we fail to choose sacrificial love for one another in the way that we see described in Scripture, our faith is failing. When we don't interact with one another in ways that express gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love and an eagerness for unity, then our faith is failing and we are sinning against God and against one another. Can I ask you, is this a timely word for anyone today? Is this a timely word for you today? I think it's safe to say that God in his providence has given us this message as precisely what we need to hear today, as a means of grace to us to correct us and to encourage us, to strengthen our faith and to embolden in us a commitment to choosing to sacrificially love one another in Christ. Sound City, let's let this exhortation to us, this command to uh, us to extend Philadelphia to one another, let's let it sink down deep. And let's together allow this word from God to wound us faithfully where it needs to, like a scalpel. So that we might be found faithful to God, faithful to one another, and faithful as a church before a watching world as a witness of our God's great love. Concerning Hebrew 13.1's command to love one another with brotherly love, John Calvin has said this, This precept is very needful, for nothing flows away so easily as love When everyone thinks of himself more than he ought, he will allow to others less than he ought, and then many offenses happen daily which cause separations. May it never be said of us, Sound City. Amen? But before we turn our attention to verses 2 and 3, though, I want to make sure we don't move too quickly and miss how culturally nonsensical this command to love one another with the same kind of love we love our own families would have been in the first century. As I mentioned earlier, outside of the scriptures, the Greek word Philadelphia was reserved almost exclusively for describing the care and service and the affection and the bond between family members, between siblings. So when the biblical writers began to write and speak the way that the author of Hebrews does here, they're really stepping on a cultural landmine. There was a pagan, irreligious writer around this time named Lucian. And he was a satirist. He wrote mostly about culture, and he was known for writing in a really witty and sarcastic way. And in one of his writings, he writes to a correspondent of his saying, that relationship among Christians is unusual. They are to regard one another as brothers. Moreover, their original lawgiver persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another. In another one of his well-known works, he Uh, There was a story he'd written in which the main character famously goes on taking advantage of the generosity of Christians. That's the plot of that story. And so while Lucian is certainly no friend to the church, his writings help us understand that at this time in history, most people outside of the community of faith were totally unprepared for a teaching encouraging non-family members to live with brotherly and sisterly affection and service to one another. The command that the author of Hebrews is offering us up to us here in verse 1 is nothing short of radical. And he wasn't the only one saying it either, was he? There were other biblical authors and Jesus himself that at the time were saying similar things and offering similar teachings. We'll look at just a couple. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul instructs the church in Thessalonica with similar language, even calling them brothers directly. The verses say this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. 
For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Then Jesus himself, while instructing his disciples in Matthew 23, verse 8, says to them, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Now to use this language of brothers here with this particular group of folks, it would have been countercultural to say the least. But the point is this, that for the Christian, according to the Bible, it's the shared confession of Christ as Savior and Lord that creates a greater bond, a greater bond even than family. And if this is true, then unity within the church might be a bigger deal than we might otherwise think, huh? And the way that we relate to and serve and care for one another might be of more importance than we might originally think as well. So why might a command like this to prioritize brotherly love be so important for us? Well, first, let's look at a selfish reason. Apparently, when we love one another well as Jesus' disciples, we also set ourselves up for God's blessing. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, says this, Finally, all of you, he's talking to Christians, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Who of us wouldn't want that, right? Now my suspicion is that much of the blessing being spoken of here is likely found simply in the experience of the care and the kindness and service that we each enjoy when we are loved by other Christians with that Philadelphia kind of brotherly love. But whatever this blessing is, we know that it's from God and we know that it's good. So that's one reason to prioritize brotherly love, a selfish one. Now maybe a more selfless reason why prioritizing brotherly love might matter quite a bit. And that's our testimony concerning Jesus, our witness to a watching world. In John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now we find this love one another command all throughout the New Testament, and especially in 1 John, if you want a place to do further study later, where that's a major theme in the book. But what Jesus is saying here is our love for one another extends way beyond the already huge blessings that we naturally receive from the brotherly affection and service and care at the hands of our fellow Christians. Our Philadelphia for one another, according to these verses here in John and elsewhere, is a testimony and a witness to the greatness of Jesus and to the life he inaugurates in each one of us when he calls us to himself in a saving way. At its best, the way we love one another is the distinguishing mark of the Christian community. And it's a primary strategy that God uses in us to reach a lost and dying world. Did you know that? Tertullian of Carthage, the second and third century theologian and church father, is said to have declared that the one thing that converted him to Christianity was not the arguments that Christians had given him. Because he felt like he could probably find a counterpoint for almost every argument that they would present. But, he says, they demonstrated something that I didn't have. The thing that converted me to Christianity was the way they loved each other. How about you, Sound City? Beyond the blessings we receive 
by loving and serving one another well? Have you ever really stopped to consider the huge evangelistic motive for loving and serving your fellow Christians? Or let me ask it this way. If someone had the video footage to the last year of your life, what would they see in terms of you actively and sacrificially loving your fellow Christians? And what kind of evangelistic impact would that footage inspire in others, do you think? What's it that Pastor Aaron says sometimes? If you can't say amen, you might want to say ouch. Listen, these questions are not meant to cast judgment on you. We are all works in progress. That's called sanctification. It's part of the Christian life. So if those questions sting a little, that's okay. Let them sting a little. That's called conviction, and that's what the Holy Spirit often uses in his ongoing fine-tuning of our hearts to get our attention and to draw us closer into line with the will of God for our lives. Let brotherly love continue, verse 1 says, for four little words, an awful lot there. As we turn our attention now to verses 2 and 3, what's clear immediately is that both of these verses are related closely to verse 1, but kind of in a surprising way. Let's look back at the passage. I'll read it one more time for us, and then we'll dig into it. Let brotherly love continue. And then verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first look at these verses all together, it looks like they're three related but very unique and different things. At first glance, when I read it, it looks like verse 1 is about loving Christians and loving one another well, as we first talked about. It looks like verse 2 is probably about showing hospitality to non-Christians because it uses the word strangers. And then verse 3 looks like it's about what the Bible will often call uh, loving the least of these, those in prison, those who are otherwise mistreated. But when we study the passage a bit more, we begin to see something that was at least for me a little bit surprising. Namely, that verse 2 and 3 aren't focusing on ways to care for those outside the community of faith as we might think at first glance. Now, to be sure, we are called to be a blessing to those outside the faith family. We are called to love those who don't know Jesus, even those who would be considered our enemies, the Bible says. But that's just not what's in view primarily here in our passage today. Instead, verses 2 and 3 end up showing themselves to be... uh, a really helpful extension of verse 1, helping us understand the key ways for extending brotherly love as fully and as completely as we can within the community of Christ. Let's start unpacking this a little bit further by looking at the word hospitality here in verse 2. Philo exenias is the word in Greek, and it means to receive or entertain, give aid to, care for a guest. And then verse 2 extends that aid and care to strangers in this case. But more than likely, it's not primarily random strangers in view, but Christian strangers. Now, if that's true, then verse 2 becomes really, really helpful in giving us a greater sense of what verse 1 was trying to command us in saying, extend brotherly love, continue in brotherly love within the family of faith. The picture becomes even clearer still when we remember that the author of Hebrews is writing his letter only about 30 years or so after the time of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. The church is a new thing at this point. And at this time, most churches operated as a network of homes. This was also a time of persecution against Christians. And so it was common for Christians traveling as teachers and preachers and missionaries and messengers and even refugees 
would be common for them to rely on the residences of other Christians as they traveled for shelter and for provision. We even have witnesses to this in the scripture that we can go to, like here in the book of Acts chapter 21, where we read, After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Menanson, not a typo, that's just a weird biblical name, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So with this being a common practice in the church, and when we remember how weary and in need of brotherly love the doubting Christians who first received this letter were, it makes perfect sense then why the author of Hebrews would want to say to them here at the beginning of chapter 13, hey, brothers and sisters, don't be weary. Continue in your love for one another through the sacrificial kindness and service and affection and care for one another. And extend that brotherly love even to your Christian brothers and sisters who would seem to be strangers to you. For they too are experiencing persecution. And they too need the refreshment in faith that comes from brotherly love. The Apostle Paul said something like this in Romans 12, 13 as well. Where he says to the church at Rome, contribute to the needs of the saints, the Christians, the faith community. And seek to show hospitality to them. So that's the main idea here in verse 2. But as the verse continues, we find uh, the author of Hebrews offering another motivation, perhaps, or a benefit for growing and extending brotherly love even to the stranger. He says that by doing so, some have entertained angels unaware. Now, the author of Hebrews is probably has in his mind at this time things like Genesis 18 and 19, where we see Abraham and Lot uh, inviting in, showing hospitality to angels that they assumed were just regular men. But what's happening here, what he's meaning to teach his first audience and us is probably not that once we get this whole brotherly love thing right, we should just expect a bunch of angels to start showing up at our doors. Rather, he's making a point that we've seen, seen hints of already when we looked at uh, our verse in First Peter three, verse chapter 3, that there are really great and unexpected blessings that come from our obedience to God in loving one another well within the body of Christ. Let me offer an example. So who was part of the whole embrace the awkward summer lunch challenge in here? Hands up, come on. Okay, yeah, I mean, a good chunk of you were involved in it. Okay, next question. Now, how many of you participated in it a little bit begrudgingly? Maybe had a little bit of a bad attitude when you started? Anybody willing to say that? Yeah, okay, I see a few. That's, that's okay. So of those of you who started out a little fussy about the whole thing, how many of you ended up sharing stories and really experiencing great blessing from getting to know some of the Christian strangers here within your own church. We heard lots of stories from lots of you about what a blessing it was to be in one another's homes, to share a meal together, and just to hear stories uh, from each other's lives. And so while it's not impossible that we would get to show hospitality to angels as we grow in expressing brotherly love, our passage more so means to encourage us with the truth that it should be normative that we experience blessing when we gather with, invite in, and sacrificially help other brothers and sisters in Christ. And what good news that is. Now, verse 3 continues, then, expanding our understanding of verse 1's exhortation to let brotherly love continue even further, saying this, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. 
Now for me, just as in verse 2, when I first read verse 3, it seems most likely that it's talking about uh, outreach and care of non-Christians. And while that idea is not completely foreign from verse 3, the non-Christian isn't the primary prisoner. It isn't the primary mistreated one that's in view. Now why do I say that this time? Well, if we look back to chapter 10 in Hebrews, we get a bit of a clue from the context there. Now, I'm going to show you a couple of verses, and I'm going to show them to you in the NLT translation, since it has, uh, it'll really help us kind of really get a feel for the backdrop of our verse 3 that we're looking at. But typical disclaimer for translations like the NLT, they're not literal translations. They are thought for thought. They're kind of interpretive translations, so always best to start with a more literal translation, which is why we teach and preach out of the ESV. Um, But in this case, I think it's going to be really helpful, and it's a good understanding of what's going on uh, in the backdrop of Hebrews here as we look at chapter 3. So let me read those for us. Uh, Chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. Think back, the author of Hebrews says, on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten, and sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you, things that will last forever. So now when we go back and look again at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 13, and we look at them through the lens of chapter 10, it reads a little bit different, doesn't it? Now when we read through the passage with that backdrop of the rest of the book of Hebrews, we see that the author of Hebrews with the heart of a pastor is pleading with a community of really persecuted and imprisoned and mistreated Christians to remember back to a time not so long ago when they boldly endured persecution for their faith by clinging to their faith in Jesus by focusing on serving other Christians and especially those being mistreated as a joyful expression of Philadelphia and by clinging with patience to the promise of the abiding eternal possession that we have in Christ. In our verses today, the author of Hebrews is reminding his first audience of these earlier days when he'd watched them fight and persevere in faith by living out their faith with boldness. And here in chapter 13, as his letter draws to a close, the author of Hebrews is encouraging them once again to endure in their faith through faith. Can I ask you, where is it in your life? And what day-to-day decisions is it currently true that you, for all intents and purposes, are denying your faith in Jesus? In what corner of your heart is God wanting to admonish and encourage you today to once again Endure in faith, through faith. The author of Hebrews wants to remind us today of the steadfast hope that we have in Jesus because of his finished work on the cross on our behalf. The author of Hebrews wants to remind us today of the eternal reward that only comes from persevering and enduring in faith to the end. Rightly understood, Our passage today from beginning to end is about God's loving gift of salvation to all those who he's called to himself through Jesus. Our passage today is about the gift of an unshakable kingdom where we, along with the full assembly of the firstborn, to use the language of chapter 12, get to take up residence together with Jesus for all eternity. Our passage today is about our calling to live lives of worship that in every way overflow into love of God as shown through intentional and sacrificial love of his people. 
Now, for those of you who are not Christians yet in here this morning, as you think about what we talked about in here today, let me assure you that we will not love you perfectly like these verses tell us to. We will fail you sometimes just as we fail each other sometimes. Because though we are saved from the penalty of our sin, we are still imperfect and we are still works in progress. But if you're here today, then maybe it's because you've seen a glimpse of that otherworldly, countercultural, Philadelphia kind of love already, even if imperfectly. Maybe through the one that invited you here today, or maybe through some other Christian that you've had relationship in days past. Now, if that sounds like you, then maybe today is the day. Maybe today is the day that God saves you. And as a way of affirming what God has now already done in you, I'd encourage you to just offer up a simple prayer, if that sounds like you. Asking him to forgive you of your sins because of Jesus' work on the cross and then telling him that you want to commit the rest of your life to following him as Lord. Now, for those of us who, by grace through faith, already belong to Jesus, as one of your pastors, I want to encourage you, uh, I want to join the author of Hebrews in exhorting you and encouraging you to persevere in your faith in Jesus, so much so that it would overflow into a response of worship in every word, thought, and deed. And I want to challenge you to ask God to show you what that ought to look like for you personally. Actually, ask him. And I want to admonish you to let brotherly love continue in every way in your life so that Jesus' name would be made much of and so his church, including us, would get to reap the benefits of that good harvest. Sound City, as we turn the corner into this 13th and final chapter of the book of Hebrews, we get to hear the author of Hebrews' final reminders and exhortations. The final inspired words God gave him to teach us and their full of don't-forget-tos and remember-to type instructions for the living out of the lives of worship that he's called us to. And in the first of these final instructions in chapter 13, we've been strongly admonished by the author of Hebrews to not forget to continue in Christ-abiding, faith-encouraging, brotherly love within the community of faith. Concerning this high calling found in our passage today, John Calvin said, he calls love brotherly, not only to teach us that we ought to be mutually united together by a peculiar and inward love, but also that we may remember that we cannot be Christians without being brethren. Being part of God's family means sacrificially loving God's people. Being part of God's family means sacrificially loving God's people. Sound City, may we always be found faithful to this high calling, and may we always be found to be a faithful and effective witness to the greatness of our God because of our steadfast, sacrificial love for one another. Amen? Well, with that, we're going to turn now to a time of responding to what God's been teaching us. And as we often do, we'll do that in a number of different ways. So if our financial stewards would come, we'll go ahead and begin our response through giving. Now, one of the key verses that we look at as we think about responding and worshiping God through giving is 2 Corinthians 9, 7, which says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Said another way, the Bible would not have us be a people that would worship our money, but who would worship with the finances that God has entrusted to our care. 
But if you're a guest, if you're new here, um, this, this isn't for you. Now, we wouldn't want to take away the opportunity for you to worship God in this way, but you're under no obligation to do that. We're just really here, or we're just really glad that you're here if you're new or if you're a guest. But now, for the rest of us, just a reminder of the ways that you can give. In addition to the baskets coming around, there's information on the screen to tell you how to text to give, if that'd be something that would be helpful to you. You can also give online by following the instructions uh, on the website. And then there's also giving envelopes out at the Connect Desk, out in the foyer, and you could grab one of those after the service and drop it in the give box that's out there by the Connect Desk as well, if you prefer to give that way. Now, in a moment, you'll also see communion element baskets being passed, and if you would, when those are passed, just take those elements when you get them and hold on to them, and then we'll take those together here in just a minute. But before we get to that, let me share a few discussion questions and prayer points with you from the sermon today as well, so that you can use those uh, as you see fit in your community groups and in personal reflection this week. They're printed in your weekly, but I'll go ahead and read them for us now as well. Number one, discuss the meaning and application of let brotherly love continue from Hebrews 13.1 as it relates to the original audience of his letter, as it relates to our church, and as it relates to you personally. Number two, discuss what surprised you about the nature of the strangers in verse 2 and the prisoners and mistreated ones in verse 3, and what difference does this make to your own sense of living out your faith in Jesus? Number three, What important evangelistic impact do these verses have if they are primarily about Christians' love for one another? And what change does this truth motivate in your own walk with Christ? And then number four, discuss the most impactful thing that you learned today, the thing that God really put a finger in your chest maybe and got your attention with, the thing where you found some conviction. So identify that, share it with your group, and then try and answer the question, what's God asking you to do about it? Now, we're committed to be a praying church as well, a praying people. And so for prayer points this week, here's a couple to get you started. You can be praying that God would help us to better live out the reality that being part of God's family means sacrificially loving God's people. And we should be praying that our love for one another also would increasingly motivate others toward Jesus and a saving relationship with him. Now, another way that we'll be responding this morning is through communion, and this is a time where all Christians are welcome to receive the Lord's Supper. We sometimes call this a memorial meal because the bread is, that we take reminds us of Jesus' body broken for us and the juice reminding us, reminding us of his blood that is shed for us. And the scriptures themselves encourage us in this act of worship. Uh, in a passage we often look to is 1 Corinthians 11, where it says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, it looks like most of you have the communion elements by now, so let me pray for us, and then we'll respond through song as well, and then at that point, you can feel free to take the communion elements as you see fit, and then when you're ready, you can stand to your feet and join us as we worship Jesus together. So let me pray for us, and then we'll respond. God, thank you for the reminder today of what brotherly love is, of why it matters, and why you've called us to it. May we never forget that being part of your family means sacrificially loving your people. And may we never forget that there's not only glory in that for you, but blessing in that for us as well. 
You are good, God. We love you, and we pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.